Welcome to the Brutecast, the flagship digital outreach platform of the Krulak Center. Inspired by its namesake, the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Creativity enables an interdisciplinary approach to supporting all students and faculty at Marine Corps University through complex problem solving, fostering an environment that enhances our collective warfighting capability, and facilitating and encouraging novel solutions to current and future warfighting challenges in order to expand the Corps' competitive edge and improve our warfighting effectiveness. The Brutecast is a web series that we've run for almost a year to help connect subject matter experts with Marine Corps University students to help them think about those novel solutions. We're now adapting many of our former webinars to the podcast format to help spread that knowledge even wider. We hope you enjoy this episode and all the ones to follow. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. All right, good afternoon, Team Krulak community. My name is Major Ian Brown. I'm the Operations Officer at the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Creativity. And on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Krulak Center, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thoughts. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Now I'm happy to turn the mic over to Dr. Brendan Valeriano, the Krulak Center's Bren Chair for Military Innovation, to introduce today's guest. Dr. Valeriano, over to you. Hello, Krulak community. Um, I'm happy to have Emma Moore with us today. Emma is a research associate for the Military Veterans uh, and Society Program at the Center for New American Security, CNAS. Uh, Emma Moore is also a neon resident fellow at the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Creativity at the Marine Corps University. It's been a pleasure to get to know Emma over these last few months, and she is a rising star in the think tank and military community. Prior to joining CNAS, Emma served as executive assistant and social media lead for narrative strategies. And she's previously worked as a program manager for ProVetus, a veteran peer mentoring organization. Today, she's going to be talking to us about culture and change, how the Marines should lead on personnel reform. Uh, important topic for us all, and I'm excited to hear her presentation. Emma? Thank you, Brandon and Ian. Um, and thanks, everybody, for being here today. As mentioned, I'm Emma Moore. And working on the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for New American, uh, New American Security, I think a lot about recruiting, how to use talent, and what policy shifts should occur to enable and retain individuals. But I keep running into the concept of culture and what makes it sticky. So how does culture change happen? How can it be facilitated, fostered, and enabled? And what kind of culture change is seen as acceptable? So I'll touch on where the Marine Corps has struggled, why it is uniquely positioned to lead in this space. And it'll primarily be wave tops on these issues. I would welcome the opportunity to go in depth on any of them, but this is deliberately broad so as not to get bogged down in the weeds of specific personnel change. I do want to acknowledge that these theories, material, these solutions have been advocated for and known for years, even decades. The benefits of not just diversity, but inclusion are manifold and evidenced in the private sector and in research. So to start with culture, moving on to the um, General Berger's birthday message. He noted where others see challenges, Marines see opportunities. One place where Marines have consistently not seen opportunities is with its personnel. This is more than just female integration, as Dr. Kai Hunter spoke so well about in her broadcast, uh, gender inclusion versus integration. It will be hard for the Marine Corps to move past the legacy of being the service that pushed back on Jonas Hotel female inclusion, and desegregation. However, the Commandant has stated on numerous occasions the importance of diversity, which shows significant buy-in from leadership. General Berger and future Commandants should ensure this is more than political lip service, and they should lead on creating a more effective, efficient, and innovative force, rather than leaving it up to Congress. As the Marine Court scales down, maybe more than expected, faces additional budgetary constraints and confronts new missions, it should leverage its demonstrated competencies um, for this unique opportunity. I'll start by identifying some known hurdles to building more effective teams. First, women and people of color take themselves out of the running in numerous instances. 
you know, retention is poor with representation diminishing with each promotion cycle. And officers in particular are over overwhelmingly white and male. As General Berger has said, the Marine Corps has never really pressed women on why they leave service. So we know that they disproportionately are subject to family needs, assumptions about their commitment to service, and bias heightened weight standards, just to name a few. Women face the soft bigotry of low expectations, such as the double bind of walking a thin line between being women, being leaders, and being seen as competent. Additionally, Black women experience the double jeopardy of both gender and racial prejudice. No minority group should have to have superhuman resilience to get through or to progress within an organization. And it really is up to the Marine Corps to remove unfair barriers and build equity and to address the more indirect attitude or assumptions that these minorities will fail. Second, there's the, flaw, the idea of the flawed meritocracy. The military over relies on the narrative that it is a meritocracy. We know that's not in fact true. While tried and true barriers have diminished over time, they have not disappeared completely. To that effect, saying that the Marine Corps is standards-based is a practice of self-deception. It abdicates responsibility to review, challenge, and update those very standards that the Marine Corps themselves set. Standards change over time, and the practice of reviewing them for education, policies, literature, doctrine, and more for downstream effects should be normalized. Messaging has clearly been insufficient to backstop the fact that diversity is needed and standards shift. Sure, there will be bad apples, but fundamentally, the core has to recognize we have a problem. There's an overall lack of contrition in the ranks for biases past and present. And while the Commandant's planning guidance reiterates the idea that the soul of the Marine Corps is sound, this claim is worth contesting as Special Operations Command did with their comprehensive review on ethics and culture. We know that the Marine Corps has consistently had a gender problem, a representation problem, and in effect, a culture problem. And leaders need to step up so people don't have to retie the rope and put the tent back up continuously and over time. So stepping back briefly, what is culture and what comprises culture? What is the value in doing things as Marines have done for generations? Is culture the Spartan attitude of the expectation and willingness to endure, the legacy of battles won, drinking rippets, the crucible? Um, culture is a way of thinking about central tasks in human relationships within an organization. And military culture is defined as the attitudes, values, goals, beliefs, and behaviors that are rooted in military and Marine Corps traditions, customs, and practices. Culture, however, is not immutable. It can be influenced by leadership and training. The Marine Corps in particular has a unique ability to adapt and innovate, including establishing new cultural norms. And these opportunities are manifold because as the Marines did in the interwar years and after 9-11, transformation and innovation are the result of continuous and deliberate processes and really leaning into those changes. The Marine Corps is well positioned to lead, but um, by updating personnel policies and building an inclusive force, in part because it has the youngest population and highest turnover of any of the services at about 30,000 Marines per year. And a majority of the force is the rank of E5 or below. So if you look at that amount of turnover and the idea that indoctrination from boot camp onward reinforces ideas and values and therefore which one leaders decide to prioritize, um, there's a lot of, there's wide lateral opportunity to really affect change. Um, so the Marine Corps will benefit from its size in redefining honor, courage, and commitment. A widely held truth is that militaries make big changes when things go catastrophically wrong. The last substantial personnel overhaul occurred in 1973 with the start of the all-volunteer force after the failings of, Viet of the Vietnam War. And while it's hard to recognize one's own failings when you've been the greatest and haven't suffered a lot of consequences, um, for example, Iraq and Afghanistan have not been such abject failures as to force personnel change, it, we can still maintain that the United States military and the Marine Corps remain the best in the world. There's still an impetus to do so. So why change and how to change? Fundamentally, it's a readiness issue and therefore a question of lethality. Our, the current Commandant is clearly thinking critically about what's next, and the Marine Corps should not lose this current moment to get ahead of the game. The demand signal is there. We know that adaptation is critically important for competing with near-peer adversaries. The National Defense Strategy set the tone 
that new perspectives are essential for fighting the next fight, but also for remaining competitive long-term. It's more than modernization, it's more than platforms. It will really be the idea that people are our greatest asset. China, for example, has proven willing to change. The PLA has overhauled its organizational structure and invested in the quality of its personnel and population. It possesses multiple avenues for surmounting demographic and social obstacles in order to achieve its vision of fielding a world-class military in coming decades. And while it might have made limited headway and reform is nascent, again, the U.S. military and Marine Corps cannot rely on having been the best for continuing to be the best. Leaning into change and digging into the why now and why the Marine Corps um, really originates with General Berger and the Commandant's plan guidance. Um, the planning guidance can sometimes have the ability to affect significant transformation despite internal and external protests. The Marine Corps has repeatedly shown it is adept at embracing organizational change and at operating in complex environments. And we've seen with the current planning guidance, um, despite significant change, there's been generally not that much pushback and goodwill, even, even despite some dissenters in Congress and in, and in the force. In his guidance, General Berger reaffirms that the Marine Corps will remain the nation's elite force in readiness, and this comes with greater emphasis on distributed operations and mission command, kind of adhering to the Marine Corps' expeditionary ethos. And as the Marine Corps has shown through history, doctrine, and institutional training, this, this relies on trust and subordinates to really take initiative to achieve commander's intent. But inherent to the success is investing in the Marines to execute, conceive of, and dictate these concepts and orders. And having diverse teams will be critical in denied environments, but not just diverse teams, really enabling it and leveraging that diversity. We know that adapting to change and uncertainty is nothing new for Marines, but it's past time to get comfortably uncomfortable with the idea of changing who comprises the Marine Corps. So, as I've said before, one area where the Marine Corps has not aggressively explored is how to leverage its people. Most changes have been directed by civilian leaders, Congress, or have, have walked the line of the realm of acceptable change. General Berger has indicated interest in manpower and personnel, including how the construction of teams makes the Marine Corps more lethal. And in his planning guidance, he highlights the growing war-fighting contributions of Marines who are not on the front line. And hopefully this will be a diminishing of the dominance of infantry and aviation, which will be a major transformation for the Corps. Force design changes should be backed by a willingness to take similar risks and updating those manpower and personnel policies via training, education, and retention. But how to actually hold yourself accountable and to know what's going on. Understanding culture allows individuals and leaders to create a culture of change. Measuring something makes it real, it makes it tangible, it makes it describable, and therefore makes it something we can affect. We know that Marine Corps culture tends to be more hierarchical and market-driven, so it's both within chain of command, but because of its small size and family-like feel, um, it, it's a bit of a different flavor that's less strictly hierarchical. Marine Corps culture is predominantly focused outward, it values stability and control, and it seeks internal integration. These, these traits can make it invaluable for fostering teamwork in dangerous settings, but can also lead to risk aversion and make it hard for individuals outside the tra traditional identity to become full participating, mem full participating members. So in measuring organizational culture, it allows for managing the dynamics of difference and institutionalizing cultural knowledge for success. The Corps has dealt with things like sexual assault, mistreatment, and racism at the battalion level. Lack of inclusion is a broader systemic issue, but it seems leaders are unsure of how to deal with it because comprehensively addressing a cultural trait requires admitting culture is the core of the problem. So I've heard many individuals say some variant of no leader has ever not taken X issues seriously. And while that might be true, every Marine and the Marine Corps at large must acknowledge that they are part of the problem in order to move forward. Issues cannot be addressed until they are acknowledged as a pattern instead of a one-off. That kind of goes back to the, the idea of the bad apple. So organizational culture and command climate are two distinct parts that do interact and, and work together for change. And fixing it at the command level has proven insufficient. But 
while that sounds a little harsh, you know, I'm, I'm advocating for diversity and inclusion. Um, but, and I can sell you a car, but if you just want to ride the horse, that's kind of the prerogative of the Marine Corps to keep doing. In order to foster culture change and really iterate that through the ranks, leadership must take unequivocal steps to invest in clarity, transparency, and accountability. That's cl- clearly conveying goals, transparently stating measurements and reasons for those goals, and holding members of the organization accountable. Then this can be modified once measured um, and culture is actually acknowledged, modified based off of situation and setting at the organizational level and at the team level. For example, when Jim Mattis, as Secretary of Defense, said the jury was still out on women in combat, he gave tacit approval for not upholding accountability. Another example is that just yesterday, the Secretary of the Army, Ryan McCarthy, acknowledged that SHARP failed its mandate, and that allows the Army um, to hold itself accountable and also to develop new trainings while being transparent about the lack of efficacy of that program. Now, understanding commanders are in their position to perform and accomplish the mission without a lot of extra time, the demand signal to elevate inclusion therefore must come from leaders and be iterated throughout. It has to be reprioritized. And the idea that there's a frozen middle is a handy excuse that kind of fails to reflect the agency and influence of field and company grade leaders. So far, the Marine Corps has not communicated openly, frequently, and effectively about the need to foster diversity and be inclusive because we haven't really seen the needle move on any of these metrics. And until the Corps honestly addresses cultural gaps, it will continue to deprive itself of talent and fall short of fully living up to its core values. But you can change the part of the Marine Corps you touch. It is really well suited to take the lead, um, as I've evidenced and, and as everybody probably well knows. Um, for institutionalizing the kinds of military cultural competencies required for great power competition and meeting new threats. Its purposely decentralized authority makes for an inherently flexible and adaptive fighting force, and this can be leveraged to its own benefit. But we know that behavior-based trainings alone are insufficient. Telling people to change behavior is not the same as changing it, as um, SEC Army mentioned with the SHARP, and also we know that death by PowerPoint is a, is a terrible way of actually changing behavior. You have to have metrics that you then have to measure and hold the organization accountable to. The best way to affect change is through informal knowledge acquisition, which occurs through observation, conversation, mistakes, reflection, and experimentation. So I do think that DOD and the Marine Corps take these issues seriously. I do think that leaders understand the value of diverse teams, but I also think it is an uphill battle to actually implement the policies and perspectives to really drive inclusion forward. The military has been set up around the conventions of a male-dominated profession born out of a male-dominated culture, and therefore everything outside of those norms are considered antithetical to traditions. Um, And then these inherently inform dimensions of diversity that are valued or devalued within the organization. It also creates hierarchies that assign meaning and value to each individual. Okay, so why diversity though? There's significant results-driven data that shows organizations that are diverse make better decisions. This is, this is fairly well known, but to recap, diversity does not equal integration, does not equal inclusion, does not equal equality, and does not equal equity. Equity is when dimensions of diversity no longer become impediments to thrive, flourish, or contribute fully within an organization, which will only make the Marine Corps more effective in its facing new missions, whereas diversity requires the focus of recruiting command while inclusion demands a shift in organizational culture. It is more than just add diversity or add women and stir. Um, Strategies then have to be embedded throughout command, and these values have to be clearly communicated by leadership. And in trying to move past the why diversity to how diversity, um, it's still important to communicate the why diversity and really harping on why it makes more effective teams, and that's part of that that clarity and communication that leaders need to engage in regularly. But but in this, for the purposes of this presentation, thinking through how diversity and inclusion, um, I'll lay out some theoretical and leadership approaches that, when included in mission analysis, can strengthen decision-making. 
First, the idea of radical inclusion is to facilitate an understanding about the truth of an organization's effectiveness and then to understand the sources of assumptions that may obscure the true reasons for that effectiveness. So really considering what we assume makes us effective, but also the real reasons behind what that is and understanding that culture and traditions are not a monolith. To this point, critical race theory recognizes bias lies in what saturates everyday mundane actions and policies. It provides a lens through which to evaluate those downstream effects and address known hurdles that I mentioned previously. Second, critical action is the process of taking mindful steps to correct the self or group when slipping back into implicit bias or behaviors that marginalize unrepresented groups. Developers of leaders and their organizations should be willing to, and able to assess organizational perspectives, policies, and practices that prevent people from advancing. Um, this then allows an organization such as the Marine Corps to ask questions as to why a female tent or gender segre segregated recruit training is not actually the right approach for inclusion. Third, the core in enabling decentralized command and control should a practice adaptive leadership, which values collective solutions over controlled solutions. It's open to contentious ideas and it is comfortable with uncertainty and change. Um, this, these solutions engage differences and move beyond simple hierarchical relationships. And now the Marine Corps already does this with every part of training and drilling on how to respond to uncertain environments. It permits disseminated decision-making in denied environments. However, really fostering that from leadership, both in garrison and while deployed, will leverage the skills and talents of everybody in the Corps. And while these approaches should be somewhat familiar, if theoretical framings for challenging existing beliefs and norms, um, they are helpful guiding principles to start including in processes. But what are some concrete opportunities that the Marine Corps can do? It can foster mentorship. We know that's a key driver of success and service, and it can happen formally or informally. Um, because white men still comprise the majority of senior leadership, um, they should look to expand and mentor people who do not look like them. Formal mentorship and coaching networks must also be extended to the enlisted ranks. Um, and should be set up for specific um, underrepresented groups. Mentorship becomes a commitment to an individual's progress over time and therefore is critical for overall success and representation, which can foster um, retention as well as recruiting. But second, recognizing talent is in line with the strategies and theories mentioned previously. The private sector has started implementing management processes that accept and embrace differences in the team from the outset, but then work to accommodate, combine, and leverage diverse thinking styles. Innovation, while an overused buzzword, requires leaders become vehicles for ideas to move and compete. But it is also a complex process that is neither linear nor always apparent, and therefore requires prolonged engagement um, beyond perhaps just a commander's assignment and, and really working to, to build that out for a long period of time. And it, accepting the risk inherent in fostering that innovation. And it is backed by supporting suggestions from all corners, regardless of rank, job, or experience. And then most critically, standards must be mission connected and reviewed for that very purpose. Leaders must then communicate when and why standards can and should change. And it's important to note that currently the DOD writ large from entry standards to certain certain standards once somebody is serving um, are, are standards from yesterday's wars. Primarily they bring people in, but these create structural conditions under which the Marine Corps is missing out on key talent. But how do we develop personnel to broaden this just beyond diversity to really enabling people to move through the organization and be an asset? It does start with recruiting. For years, the military has recruited from easy markets. And the Marine Corps largely expects new recruits to come to them. While the military's priority in recruiting is um, one of mass and numbers, it must update recruiting policies so it's no longer a blunt instrument, but able to be more flexible to align skills, interests, and behaviors to overall mission requirements. This includes expanding outreach geographically and demographically to bolster access to highly developed skills. 
On integrating women, for instance, General Berger said, now it becomes a function of recruiting and advertising, or in other words, soliciting a more balanced, more diverse force, because our belief fundamentally is that we're going to make better decisions. Um, augmenting talent, um, because of the Marine Corps size, it has an opportunity to augment talent in unique ways, such as the pitch for the cyber auxiliary. Other opportunities are lateral entry or short-term contracts for specific skill sets. And this is with recruiting, these initiatives require front-end investment for long-term relationships. Something I usually return to is opportunities for enlisted. Because the Marine Corps is small, it is young, and it has so much turnover, um, it's important to recognize the talent that does live in the enlisted ranks, which also tend to be more diverse than officers or demographically diverse. Many authorities and new talent initiatives, education opportunities, and broadening assignments focus on officers and should be ex extended to leverage individuals already in service and those who are in the enlisted ranks. So I just want to note that while I've covered the idea of gender as a very easy um, example for for diversity, this is cognitive, it's skill set, it's behavior, it's geographic, it's language. There are a lot of different iterations of diversity, but the shorthand is easiest to go with gender. And I will, I will kind of end there and say, in short, the Marine Corps is very well positioned to be a leader amongst the services and partner, partner nations to lead on personnel reform. And I welcome your questions. Great, thank you so much. Uh, Obviously, a critical topic, and um, it's, it's almost Christmas time. So I'm curious, what do you think, uh, what are your most critical cultural norms that the Marine Corps needs to change and adopt? Basically, what's on your Christmas list for cultural norms in the Marine Corps? Interesting framing. <laughs> I... Uh, one of the things, and I've mentioned recurrently, is the idea of accountability um, and iterating that throughout. One of the, the cultural norms that I'd like to see is the Marine Corps, Marine Corps and leadership really lean into this change because um, the perception, certainly outside, is that it does so begrudgingly. Every Marine that I've met has been, you know, has thought fairly critically about these issues. But the question that I maintain is why why the realities um, of sexual assault, of uh, mistreatment continue? And again, that's a shorthand for gender integration. But I, I want to see people be held to the standards and the ethos of the Marine Corps and have that seen throughout. Um, and I'll, I think that's the main one. Okay. And uh, sticking with my theme here, um, it's almost Thanksgiving. So what are you thankful for as it relates to talent management and retention in the DOD and the Marine Corps? The Marine Corps has a very specific brand message, and it's able to pull people in because of those values and the mission set that it has. Um, we know the Marine Corps doesn't quit. The Marine Corps has been able to adapt to so many different requests for change. Um, it's had to rethink itself on so many occasions and, and is regularly um, held to task by Congress, and yet it keeps going and still accomplishes the mission. So I, um, I think it's been really impressive to see when that has worked as well as it has, and I think we are in um, – a really fascinating moment with this next defense strategy um, or national defense strategy and the, the Commandant's planning guidance that's seeing that in action. Okay. And uh, I'll end with my holiday questions now, but, uh, you know, just thinking about how we can all try and move on and think about some other things over the next few weeks. Uh, but going back to diversity, uh, we're going to need to go over that for a minute because it's such a critical and important topic, um, mainly because resistance is common. And with the recent executive order and the demand of the DOD to actually go through and start to catalog 
all diversity and inclusion initiatives. Why do we need to be so focused on diversity as a fighting force? I know diversity improves outcomes, as the research suggests. But is there research and is there evidence that diversity improves the Marine Corps as a fighting force? How does this translate to the battlefield? There are certain things that I think in training and um, and in other in, in the implementation that the Marine Corps knows itself best, and so it's not a, it's not to add quotas. It's not to say just throw demographic diversity into each unit, but it certainly starts to to ask the question of how are decisions made, and that that will translate directly to. Uh, to battles one is to say we can think through new solutions. So maybe you don't actually have to go around that corner and fight somebody. Maybe you have an innovative way of getting the information and intel you need. So the, because we know that diversity has better, uh, leads to better solutions, better decision makings and more, um, and more efficacy in making those decisions. It should be invested in, and the Marine Corps hasn't tried it, so it's also to say um, it's kind of trying to prove a negative. Um, we know that diversity matters and is an asset to any organization, but the Marine Corps hasn't truly invested in seeing how that works. Okay, and uh, I do want to remind everyone listening in that if they have questions, so please add them to the chat, and I will call on you to ask the question if you can. If not, let us know, and I will ask the question myself. Uh, one more of my questions, and then we'll turn to everyone else's, and one from Colonel Jackson, who wasn't able to be here. Um, let's talk about promotions and photos. I know we've talked about this before. Um, what is this going to change? What is this going to improve? And what could we do better in terms of promotions and personnel management moving into the future? So the thing about promotion photos is it starts to remove, and I know we like to say implicit bias and that there's a certain amount of bias in recruiting and, and in the standards that the Marine Corps sets forward that are necessary for success. However, there's, there's bias for, uh, that are, that is mission driven and that are mission connected standards. And then there's, there's bias based off of, you know, heuristics and what we think makes the most sense for cognitive shorthand. So taking out promotion photos, and which is, which is a great first step, but should be expanded to take out any um, any names or information that can indicate gender or race, um, will put people on a more equal playing field. Okay. And our um, our director, Colonel Jackson, was, uh, was unable to be here, but she sent forward a question, and it's a pretty interesting one. Should the Marine Corps establish recruiting goals to account for the normal attrition of minorities to ensure there's a sufficient population remaining to continue through the ranks? I, I, I'm curious, actually. Is there evidence to suggest that uh, minorities leave the Marine Corps at a greater rate? And I know this is an issue for promotions going down the line. Are we going to need to increase the overall base of minorities in the population to achieve a more diverse fighting force? It's not as much to, I think there should be goals, although quotas are not permitted by law, um, for bringing in a greater amount of diversity at the recruiting level. Lateral entry opportunities would certainly help brought in who people who are serving at higher ranks, um, but that itself is seen as a big impact on culture. Um, but that's up to really reviewing retention policies and why people leave. So recruiting is, you can get people in the door and we've seen that the military is able to do so and bring in uh, demographics that are fairly representative of the nation, but they can't keep them around and they certainly can't keep women around. So what is it about uh, service over time um, and any any retention policies that that are failing to keep women or people of color and people of color as well, you know, around. We know that um, the military is very attractive to extremist behavior and the Marine Corps in particular. And we know that areas around many bases are not always the most receptive to uh, minority groups. 
So the military, in order to support people continuing to serve, have to think beyond what's directly in front of them if they want to continue fostering that diversity of thought for building um, efficient teams. So I, it's not as simple as um, forcing more people in. I think the military and the Marine Corps need to think really critically about what they're able to do to support individuals continuing to serve. We know that values and monetary reasons are not enough. So how do we how do we look at lessons from the private sector or anything else that can really enable them to continue to serve? Great, thank you. And we're getting a bunch of great questions from the audience. So I'm gonna call on you. If I don't hear a response in a few seconds, I'll ask the question myself. But uh, can you expand more on your thoughts on a flawed meritocracy? And are there any examples of how this has played out? The it gets at the idea that the military is standard based and the hoops that individuals must jump through in order to meet those standards. So um, if there were things like promotion photos where we knew that um, people of color were being screened out at higher rates, as we see in civilian opportunities that individuals with um, names that might seem more ethnic tend not to be less likely to get a job with the same resume. Um, it, it kind of negates the idea that the military is a meritocracy. We have consistently also seen over time that physical fitness testing um, is not actually a, an equal baseline. Now, this has been a contentious issue over time, um, particularly for women. But the idea that um, you either have two different standards for physical fitness testing um, or that it's not actually connected to, um, it's not job related, that that becomes a, a threshold that people have to move beyond that's not necessarily required and in fact can be often unfair. So the flawed meritocracy is around the idea that um, that standards are set and therefore they are they are they treat people equally. Some other examples are things like a swim test or a height test, which we've known for decades um, can be socioeconomically driven and are also trainable. But they are thresholds that people have to meet in order to join certain communities um, and and are not necessarily ones that that are fair for people. Okay, and uh, I love the next question. Andrew Roberts, are you able to ask that? Yeah, hi. Uh, yeah, just doing a pre-mortem on these good ideas. Um, you know, what if after removing all of the identifying data, the boards conduct uh, their selection, and then you look and, you know, survey says, and you reveal the results of the board, and the results come out, and you've actually selected less diversity than more than what? And what message does that say? I think it's a it's a valid question and one that has two different answers. Um, the first is that um, that's very possible, especially because of certain assignment and positions that we know that um, some people may or may not be able to take, such as. Um, and again, I I'm using women as shorthand. Um, because it's the most obvious example, um, you know, if women are on profile or if they end up as a primary caretaker and can't take certain opportunities, their their um, packets might not be as competitive and therefore they might be less likely to proceed. So the second part of that uh, of my answer is that we have to challenge what is prioritized and another um, Another fellow in for Krulak wrote just recently about um, Brian Craig wrote about the idea of these of promotion and what is actually valued um, in assignments and selection for command and that guidance is is a prerogative of leadership and of boards to really define and determine. Um, so it's also something that the Marine Corps needs to consider what it actually needs to go forward and if there's going to be, and they'll maintain the same emphasis on deployment experience and on certain um, job specialties. So in short, the, the, the short answer is um, 
when we're removing identifying data and there's less diversity, um, I think that's based off of the standards that that should that the Marine Corps is setting. Um, that makes sense if those standards are actually what is needed for leadership and to um, and for the purposes of, of being a more effective fighting force. Great, thank you. Uh, if there's any follow-ups, let me know. Uh, Kim Leon asks in the chat, she has microphone issues uh, for him. <clears throat> should not assume gender pronouns. It's something we should learn. Uh, what recommendations do you have to address uh, combat, uh, address and combat colorblind and genderblind ideology? I did the notion that Marines are green. That's the end of the sentence. There, it's a double-edged sword to uh, the baseline is Marine, right? And to say there are no um, black Marines or female Marines denies the lived experience and an actual um, value add of those lived experiences for the Marine Corps. So inclusion would be acknowledging that there are um, white Marines and black Marines and old Marines and young Marines and male Marines and female Marines and that all together they, they create a fabric that um, makes the Marine Corps more effective. I understand the goals of saying um, we don't want to differentiate based off gender or race because we're trying to minimize the, um, uh, the potential backlash about any of that or say that it shouldn't matter. Everybody needs the same standards, but those two ideas can be held together and they're not actually competing. Okay, and we got a question here from Damon Lott, and we'll go to Thomas next. Uh, Damon says their uh, their microphone is uh, commanded by U.S. Cyber Command, so they're not allowed to ask the question. Um, what are your thoughts on adapting the Marine Corps culture to be more inclusive or accommodating to attract technological skills to seem to, that seem to be reluctant to embrace the standards of the Marine Corps? Uh, I think that's a kind of a follow-on on Jackie Snyder's blue hair um, war on the rocks from a few years ago. So what are your thoughts on recruiting technology and standards? Um, there's a, it goes back to the idea of what a Marine is and looks like, and if all Marines are green. Um, and we can, we can uh, split hairs on grooming policy, but um, I think the point is in expanding and actually leading with that outreach to different geographic and demographic groups. You'll find individuals who are so keen to join the Marine Corps, but not necessarily ones that have views antithetical to, um, to serving and wearing the uniform and meeting the standards. So um, I think that physical fitness standards should be uh, based off of job category versus necessarily universal although this can shift depending on where people are deployed. Um, and it might not make sense for the Marine Corps to, to affect that change, but I think the Army should. Um, and from a technological standpoint, um, there's, there's an idea, this is a slight tangent, that the, the military really has to compete for tech talent with mon by, by offering bonuses and um, basically monetarily. But I think it's a, it's more of a lifestyle shift. So from to keep people in service, to attract them in the first place, um, I think the first order is to recognize that the public is very distant from the military, and particularly the Marine Corps. So so you have to develop a relationship, um, and then that relationship will lead to people understanding the values as well as the the day to day of what service is and looks like. And then you will find people who might have technological prowess who can still uh, meet the standards. And I think it's worth looking also at extant talent to see who meets those standards. We just don't think about them as as this uh, mythological blue-haired unicorn uh, person in their mom's basement. That's not every hacker. That's not every um, coder. And I think there's a, there's a lot on the margins that, that can still be attracted to service. Great, thank you. Um, yeah, we're going to need to. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, met Heather Venable, one of my other fellows yet, but I think you two have a lot of interests that are aligned, uh, given her work on the history of the development of the Marine Corps and your work on uh, the evolution of the Marine Corps. 
be interesting uh, to put you two together. Uh, Thomas Levy, uh, can, can you ask a question? Can, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm an old Marine, um, currently a uh, non-resident fellow at the uh, Center for uh, Security and Regional Studies at Marine Corps University. My uh, specialty is uh, operational culture, operational uh, archaeology, which covers cultural property protection in a int uh, military intelligence context. Um, I agree with a lot of what Emma said just now. Um, the diversity, if you want to look at uh, historical precedents for what Emma's talking about, look at the uh, OSS in World War II. Uh, they actively sought out uh, refugees from Europe, uh, particularly uh, Jewish refugees, Romo refugees who spoke German and uh, other, uh, at the time, the defense languages that were critical to us winning the war, Navajo code talkers, Japanese Americans who actually served in the uh, Pacific Theater in World War II. Um, I'm a little, I, I want, I'd like to know, and I, I'm not doing this to put you on the spot, Emma, this is, this is a, this is a, a scholarly and friendly uh, discussion. Your perspective on, Amer uh, on Marine Corps culture, I'm an anthropologist, I have a doctorate in anthropology, historical anthropology, and uh, one of the tenets of anthropology is when you examine a culture that's not your own, you don't do it from your terms, you do it from their terms, and that's across the board. American military culture, as you know, is a culture in and of itself. Uh, within the Marine Corps, we have our own culture. And then within the Marine Corps, we have organizational cultures, and it dwindles on down from there. <clears throat> I would hope that when we're examining Marine Corps culture, we're not doing it in a Foucaultian method of dismantling it for the purposes of achieving a goal, no matter what, whether the goal is good or bad or indifferent. When you're looking at a culture, you need to approach it from the terms of the culture itself. And that is going to make things a lot easier in pointing out shortcomings and, um, and pointing out uh, uh, important needs for evolution and change. And uh, as far as there were some stereotypes that were that was said that, um, you know, I understand that there are prejudices everywhere, everywhere we go, but it seemed like there was a blanket, there were some blanket statements about people outside of towns and things like that. That's not true. Um, part of my dissertation was on American military culture and a lot of how academia has wrongfully indicted the American military. And again, this is not to point fingers. This is just to illustrate that stereotypes of cultures, including the military, are can be correct and can be incorrect. Um, and to end on a positive note, uh, Emma's spot on with the diversity, uh, diversity of culture, diversity of, 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 uh, of perspective, diversity of ideas, diversity of ideology as well. And uh, we are a better Marine Corps for including that diversity. And I do, not, I do not disagree with her end state. I just have a little bit of concerns of the perspective and how, how it's being approached. And I just like Emma to expand on that approach a little bit on the perspective, I understand that talking to Marines is one thing, um, but uh, I'm not saying to go native necessarily. I'm not saying that there's not good perspectives from academia. Academia has done great things for the military with outside perspectives. I just would like to make sure that when we're examining Marine Corps culture, we're doing it from the perspective of the culture itself. Anthropologically, that's the right thing to do. And as an anthropologist, I just want to impart that knowledge on this panel. Thank you. Thanks for that Great, perspective. Thanks. I would say, sure. I'm outside the organization. I don't have military combat experience. That doesn't negate the value of advocating for change or just the details that can be hammered out within. Um, and this, I, you know, I really struggled with this presentation and this idea because, um, you know, the Marine Corps has been in the mud on these issues for a long time. Um, it has dragged its feet at every single iteration of culture change. And so I decided to go with, uh, you know what, it's a little tiresome and it's time for them to, to really update policy. Understanding that, you know, as, as Brandon mentioned, what, what do I, what am I thankful for with the Marine Corps? That they usually are keen to adapt. And, um, what's hard in, in a short presentation, especially one on culture is, how to get too far into the weeds or how to evidence that, um, you know, the details of any of these policies. One thing that I, what I do try to say is 
Um, I won't always give the specifics of how culture should shift. That that really is up to leaders who understand the day to day, the or like the organizational and training fabric of how each of these things works and actually plays out on the ground. But there are some guiding principles that can be adopted to do so in a way that is comprehensive and inclusive. Um, and you know, we the end state is winning. You know, I'm I'm sure we. Um, from the and it's for the purposes of achieve, of achieving a broader goal of protecting our national security and competing against um, our adversaries. So I do want to reiterate that and and acknowledge that sure there are a lot of details that I don't know and I work on military culture and recruiting broadly. Um, but it is it is really hard to diagnose culture from within and it's harder to acknowledge where those gaps and feelings are. And so with with this argument, I have tried to to kind of, you know to really say strongly that it is time um, it is time for the Marine Corps to to stop dragging its feet and to really lean into it because um, how it hasn't proven that it's able to learn as an organization and really and really foster that change. The fact that Congress even last year had to mandate. The, the integration of, um, you know, of initial training was was just another evidence into that. And the fact that in the Commandant's planning guidance, he still didn't mention diversity explicitly, but has done so since. Um, so I just want to say there's there's great signaling, and, and I sure anecdotally do know a lot of wonderful Marines who are thinking about this, but the question that remains, um, and that you can look at the numbers alone and say why why hasn't the lip service worked and um, what can be done about it? And to which point I've brought up um, a lot of arguments that others may have made better and more and more in depth in order to point towards how that can be done and why it should be done. Great. Thank you. Uh, Major Brown has a question. Yeah. So um, I do. Uh, I'd like to do compare and contrast sometimes, um, especially with our, our other service branches, um, you know, similar to what I like to do with PowerPoint is like if somebody else is already doing it, I'm just going to steal what you're doing um, and adopt it if that's uh, if, if that's a better way to change. So my question was, um, there's been some recent changes um, in some of the other services, especially the Army, in terms of how they've done talent management for certain positions. Uh, for example, the, the changes in how they select battalion commanders um, I, I think the promotion photos is part of that, but they went to a more uh, uh, more granularity in sort of the process for how they selected people for those senior leadership positions. And I, I think their intent is to, you know, kind of eventually broaden this, not just from battalion command, but to, you know, promotion selection for other ranks and things like that. Um, and then it was it. As, as the Army came out with that on, on social media, I was engaging with some other folks and noting how the. You know, DOD made its photo policy and the Marine Corps had a later photo, photo policy. And then someone piped in saying, you know, the Navy actually did this many several years back and then went back to having photos and promotion boards. So not not focusing on that, but just there's been there's some changes and some um, uh, some things going on in different services that have tried to get after talent management issues that have been identified from external to the services. So. Do you think that there are there are things that the other services have done that we could adapt, you know, successfully for ourselves, or are the things the other services doing sort of still not sufficient to really getting after um, talent management issues from a holistic perspective? I'd say that most of the services and the Army's attempts at building talent are good starts. Um, so. The battalion command selection that's blind and incorporates a battery of different kinds of surveys and command climate um, information, I think, is a great way of starting to say it's not whether or not uh, you can uh, check off a list about your how well the metrics are doing, but really what do people think about you as a leader, which is a good way of starting to look at potential toxic leaders and and how to and, and whether or not they should advance because um, if people don't have a forum through which they they can actually respond to the leadership that they've had and, and report on them, 
then it's it's easy just to say this person checks all the boxes. And Farmy's also implemented a talent marketplace, uh, which is AIM, uh, I think in its second form, that's just currently um, offered to officers, although they're considering expanding that to enlisted ranks. And that starts to say you can kind of rank just like with university applications, the top three places you'd like to go. And it's a bit of um, uh, a way for people to look at applicants and say you're probably the best fit and see beyond maybe who's directly in front of them or leveraging a network. Um, I think that's something that the Marine Corps could adopt to try to more formally um, and flexibly allow people to say where they want to be in the next two to four years. Um, and to um, uh, Valerie's question, that would then uh, perhaps enable retention because people would be able to be with a spouse, um, keep their children in school, or just in a place that makes them um, happier in service. Um, then in a bit of a different vein, um, and going back to kind of the idea of diversity, um, the Navy and Air Force have been more clear in building out a roadmap and priorities for how they want to um, foster discussion and enable diversity within their services um, and, and how they define diversity. The Air Force has defined it as demographic, cognitive, behavioral, organizational, structural, and global. And that starts help um, telling the force why and why diversity does matter. It's not really, I mean, sure, the color of your skin or your gender um, speaks to a different lived experience and then therefore perhaps a cognitive asset that the military might not otherwise possess. But um, it starts to to give the reason behind what that looks like. And so I think being able to be, and I'll say again, out front ahead of these issues by stating the goals and why they matter is a good way to start then bringing in talent. Um, similar, from a recruiting standpoint, the Navy and the Army have different kinds of, I'd call them recruiting teams. Um, they have CrossFit teams and they have um, eSports teams. I know the Marine Corps has fielded individuals to go out and recruit from, say, female rugby um, teams, which uh, is a good way of saying, uh, to being very specific and targeted in, in that approach. Um, and there's also lessons to be learned from partner militaries and how they're thinking about bringing in talent. Um, the Australians do work on that short-term contract that I mentioned, where they decided it's, uh, from a legal standpoint and a monetary standpoint, much easier to bring people in on two-year contracts to fulfill certain needs that they have while having them uniformed and then saying, we as the, as the service have the option of extending that, but it's not a given that once you're in, you can stay forever if, as long as you get or not even get promoted. Um, it's a little bit more of a market approach, and that's and that's because they recognize that they're small, and the Marine Corps can probably learn from both the Brits and the Australians on some of those lessons learned because of its size and the way that it it should think about um, talent and individuals. Great, thank you. Uh, we'll keep going as long as we have questions, and I see two questions left here. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Zapata, did you want to ask a question? Yeah, so uh, it was just um, off of the comments uh, you were mentioning, Emma, and when when you mentioned uh, integration at, at boot camp or entry level, um, and it's all about winning on the national security front. So uh, just um, looking at what your definition for gender integration in, in that setting looks like, why it's important and how that is ultimately able to be tied to, to winning um, in, in, in your uh, perspective over. I'll make a joke and say it should look like Starship Troopers, but um, I'll actually say that I think um, integration in, in boot camp should be where everybody perhaps not lives and showers alongside each other, but certainly trains together from the get-go and where um, everybody is serving along from a gender perspective alongside each other from the start. And that normalizes, um, and I think this goes hand in hand with physical fitness standards by showing um, people that um, 
everybody can meet those same standards, works just as hard, and and shows that um, they are parts and members of the team. And that will, from a winning on the national security standpoint, that will, um, because women are the minority in this in this situation, um, they are going up against, they're the ones who have to prove themselves and go up against the, the baseline, which is, is a male Marine. Um, and, and so by integrating them from the get-go, um, it means that stories are not anecdotal, so meaning bias is reduced. And it also um, means that their, their influence, their suggestions are ones that everybody is used to hearing. So you just, you just normalize interaction. Um, and there, this extends to um, people who are LGB and serving openly. Um, it, it starts reducing stigma because it's just a, a normalized occurrence to all work together. And then it makes teams more um, effective because they they have that muscle memory, they have that experience, and they, they are able to then um, all work together for, uh, make, for making better decisions. And that's, that's the purpose of um, being a more effective fighting force is um, instead of having people who are tangential to decision-making or don't feel like their voice is heard um, and therefore their contributions are not included, um, it, it gets them in and, and includes them from the get-go. Great, and I love the Starship Troopers reference. Um, a wonderful movie. I just, uh, I hope people realize it's satire, though. But otherwise, um, Damon Lott, uh, are you able to ask your question? Should be checking to see if they're able to. No, they're still at the microphone. Okay. Uh, Damon asks uh, Many com companies frequently look externally to bring in new talent and fresh ideas. Do you believe that the services uh, practice of almost exclusively growing their own le leaders negatively uh, impacts cultural adaptation? If I understand this correctly, um, uh, there, this is where I would say extend opportunities for education and broadening assignments to a wider array of individuals beyond what we would call um, top performers or just officers. To, to start offering um, and allowing them to have a greater degree of experience. And also why I'd advocate for um, lateral entry in order to, to bring in kind of people who have a different view and have done different kinds of research and have different perspectives um, and therefore able to look at a problem in an inherently different way. Because there, there is immense value to shared experience and, and having, um, being able to say, oh, I did that just like every other Marine has done the same initial training, whatever, every Marine of riflemen. Um, I do, I do think that the other services train on rifles, but, um, but you know, if everyone, if we know every Marine is a rifleman, um, and that is a shorthand for shared experience, that also means that you don't have as as um, broad an array of uh, perspectives. And while diversity in any iteration will start to change that, um, one thing that I'm always fascinated by is kind of chain of command and adherence to that and how that doesn't, that means that certain issues or comments um, or pushback is not necessarily facilitated because it's so ingrained in, in certain individuals' experience, and therefore you're, you will miss out on um, on the ideas of lower-ranking individuals unless unless they're seen as going against the grain. So um, I I think that um, culture adaptation is important, but there's more flexibility therein, um, although it, it in inherently includes a greater amount of risk. That, um, but I still find, I think it's interesting where services decide to take on risk versus not, and personnel has recurrently been in an area where they're less willing to push themselves. Great, thank you. And uh, we'll start to wrap up. Um, my last question for you is, uh, what are you working on next? What do you have in coming out of the pipeline? And uh, I'm curious, do, do you have a book in you? 
We've just completed what we call our OPUS um, for the Military Veterans and Society Program, which is a five-part charter paper series on military entrance standards. Um, and the, it, well, bluff, they're all out of date and they should be changed, except for height and weight standards, um, though there's a bit of a caveat in there. So we broke this down into five different parts of propensity, medical, education, conduct, um, and then height and weight standards to look at what has changed in recent years and what should change in order to bring in talent. Um, and that was fascinating. Um, and, we'll, and we looked at also what change the DOD can and should affect with its own standards versus Whereas the end user in a lot of, in a lot of these cases, um, what local government and the federal government should do in order to improve educational outcomes and remove, um, and remove barriers for groups that are disproportionately affected by socioeconomic status and, and, um, locality in, in order to make them more qualified for service. We, we hear a lot of scary numbers of, um, what 72% of uh, young people are ineligible to serve, but I think it's also based off of what the military standards are. So there's a little a little bit of um, self-reflection that can go into that. And then looking forward, um, doing doing work on continu continuing to do work on uh, military recruiting and some of the new inroads that it's made, for example, into esports and also culture when and as it pertains to special operations. Do I have a book? Maybe, down the line. <laughs> There's always time for a book, as Major Brown will attest to. And with that, I turn it over to Major Brown. All right, thanks, Dr. Valeriano. Um, yeah, there's always time for a book if you don't, you know, sleep or do other things. Um, but our thanks to uh, thanks to Dr. Valeriano to, for facilitating and to Ms. Emma Moore for being our guest this week on the broadcast. And thank you to all the audience for joining us today. It was a great turnout. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. We hope you enjoyed this newly adapted episode of The Broodcast. You can view older episodes with their full video content on the Krulak Center YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about our other activities. And see our full range of written and media content on The Landing. Marine Corps University's digital PME portal. Check out the show notes for links to all of these, and we'll see you for the next episode.